Burning Zozo Written by Kristen Knight Narrated by Nancy Peterson Five point eight Devil's Advocate Andy raced home, her mind whirling faster than the wheels on her Schwinn. When she reached the double wide, she dropped her bike, leapt over Spooky's longboard and Emma's untouched teddy bear stroller, and bound up the rusty steps. Inside, casseroles, cakes, and homemade bread covered the kitchen table. The parish members had unloaded their sympathy by way of starchy baked goods on the Scoggin family. Layer cakes, chili fritters, sopapillas, pistachio pies, and eight kinds of cookies sat mummified in saran wrap, untouched on the kitchen table, all but the gooseberry pie that Luke was attacking. He was the only one with an appetite. Where's Dad? Andy asked, panting. Dante's? Spooky mangled the word with a full mouth. Okay, what about Jenna? Spooky pointed to her bedroom with his lips and took another gargantuan bite. Jenna's geisha door was cracked. She was transferring jeans from her dresser into a box on her bed. Andy swung the door wide. What are you doing? Rachel at work? Her husband's been deployed. So she asked me to move in while he's gone. Help with her kids. Wait, you're leaving? Her voice wavered. You're leaving me? Just a few blocks away, like ten minutes on foot, and it's like fifty bucks rent. You can't go. Not now. This isn't how it was supposed to happen. Jenna stopped packing and put her hands on Andy's shoulders. I'm never here anyway, Andy. And neither are you since you started working. Jenna straightened Andy's glasses. You can stay over at Rachel's any time you want. We can have girls' nights, do Manny petties watch Legally Blonde 2001. It'll be fun. She ran her hand down Andy's ponytail. Have I told you I love your hair like this? The blonder blonde really works. Don't leave me, Jenna. Please, you can't go... Jenna's hazel eyes drifted to the boxes and then to Emma's crib. I can't stay here, Andy. I can't be in this room. I still smell her and feel her, and she's not here. And she never will be. Sometimes I wake up in the night and think I hear her breathing. Jenna looked down at the box. It's... Just too hard. Besides, I'm officially a burden on Mom and Dad. Time to start my own life. She opened the bottom drawer of her dresser and pulled out a stack of T-shirts. You're not a burden. You're the opposite of a burden. Andy's eyes brimmed with tears. She flicked them away. Besides, what about art school? Jenna rolled a T-shirt. I was never going to be able to be a fine artist anyway. I need to make a living. Be practical. She tucked the shirt inside a silver cowboy boot and grabbed another. Look on the bright side. 
Now you can have your own actual room with your own actual shelf for your law books here. You can hang your collages there. Andy shook her head and held down the box Jenna was trying to lift. No. You can also lock the door, she tipped her head. Welcome to actual privacy. This isn't the way I wanted to get my own room. Not in a million years. I know, Andy, but I need this, Jenna said quietly, set the box down, and looked her sister in the eyes. I need to get out of here, for lots of reasons. Emma's just one of them. Can you understand that? She set her hand on Andy's shoulder. Her nails were painted with intricately airbrushed daisies in memory of her sister. She did understand. And for that reason, a part of Andy would be happy for her sister, no matter how sad she was for herself. Andy nodded and let go of the box. Andy helped Jenna fill her beetle and hugged her goodbye. Then she slouched onto the bottom front step and watched her drive away. Near the entrance to Agua Fria, the jackals were fighting over a pizza box with pepperoni stuck to the lid. There was a lot of nasty growling and a neck nip before the Roddy won and dragged his prize to the fence, turning his back on the pack. Andy folded her arms, curled over, and rocked. A stack of Shane's newspapers sat next to her on the ground. The article on top read, Mystery fever takes 22 more lives. Dozens infected. Andy flipped to the next page. Emma's doctor stood, sweaty-faced, in a photo with the director of the CDC. Another headline. Minister linked to Miami drug ring. Evidence seized by DEA. A photo of the televangelist from Arius's black and white party sat next to the words. He wore handcuffs and a grimace. Hey, a voice startled her. She sat up. Oh, geez, Chris, you scared me. Sorry, he sat on the stair beside Andy, a folder in his hands. She looked around and asked, Where's the cooper? Up the street getting oil. He kept looking at the folder in his own hand. What you got? she asked. Look... I know this is terrible timing with the funeral and all, but I think I found something important. Important how? It's Adams. You need to get away from him for good. Andy looked at him wide-eyed. Did he know? He couldn't know. I know you like him, but just let me show you what I have, and then I won't talk about it again, I promise. What? I was doing research on religious animal sacrifices and found this. He handed her a paper. A highlighted paragraph read, Under the law of Moses, the Passover holiday required the sacrifice of a young sheep or goat to be slaughtered and burned. Leviticus explains how the lamb or kid had to be one of the firstlings of the crop, the strongest and best, they also had to be unblemished and whole in order to be acceptable as an offering. She looked at Chris. 
So, the sacrifice had to be unblemished, Andy. That means no scars or markings, no tattoos. He looked down at the pale henna swirled on her hand. I think the reason Adams got so upset about your tattoo was because he was planning on... What? On sacrificing you. She stared at him and swallowed. I think he's twisted together rituals in this weird contract he thinks he's tied to. I think he and Chen were actually planning on killing you. Arius's words about friendship and loyalty bounced against the edges of the memory of his hand on her bare back. Then him shouting, She won't be clean in time. And the crack of an exploding Chinese vase. Just think about it, Chris said. Why else would he be so upset and talk about his work being wasted? What work is he doing that depends on your skin being clean? His work to help me be more professional, she played devil's advocate. You could just wear long sleeves or makeup to cover the henna. But if you're right, it means that Arius thought he was Cain before I got the tattoo. And before he called Whispering Mountain. Right, Chris said. But the piece I don't get is why he didn't just kill you earlier and get it over with. Why wait? She exhaled. The sacrifice can't happen before the August full moon. The grain moon, supposedly. I guess because Cain's original sacrifice was grain. How close to that date did you get the henna tattoo? A couple of days. He saw it for the first time on the day of. Chris looked at her with worried eyes. Andy, I... She put her face in her hands and then ran them through her hair. There's no real proof, Chris. You're just guessing. Just promise me you will not see him until you know for sure, one way or the other. And promise you will go to the police, just in case. Safe is better than sorry. You mean better safe than sorry, she said. And I can't go to the police. Not because of my dad. It's another reason. I just can't. Yes, that is what I mean. And you have to. Chris handed her the file, rose, and touched her shoulder. I'll call you later. She watched him walk toward Agua Fria, then stopped to pet the yellow lab jackal who lovingly licked his hand. Andy went to her room and started a timeline. July 15th, started work for Arius. August 16th, Vegas, dad arrested. August 17th, got a henna tattoo. August 20th, red grain moon. Arius freaks out about the tattoo. Floral delivery girl breaks nose. Hair left in sliding. The hair! She bolted to her dresser, ripped open the envelope, pulled out the lock, and took in a quick, hard breath. One end of the chunk was layered with split ends and sun-bleached tips, and the other was neatly cut. Section 6 Arbitration
6.1. Suspect. The Santa Fe FBI field office stood in a lineup of adobe buildings with no signs on the doors, all flat-roofed, flat-faced, featureless, and the same sun-bleached, anemic flesh tone as their sandy nest, so hidden in plain sight. Most people had to ask the dry cleaner next door which building was correct. Inside, Agent Brian Tate stood in front of a messy montage of case notes, blood spatter photos, police sketches stained with drips of coffee, highlighter-striped phone records, inches of text messages, a list of IP addresses, and photos of the contents of a trunk, which included a muddy quilt, a black tarp, a shovel, and a platinum men's wedding ring. A man wearing a Fu Manchu mustache and Google glasses approached. Tate, you're free. Not really. His eyes never stopped searching the board. Got a female giver here. So she's got intel on a possible homicide. Shouldn't Stevens be screening the givers? Out sick, the mustached men said. You're it. Tate shook his head. All right, I'm getting nowhere with this mess anyway. Send her to my office. One giver on rye, the man said, and walked towards the holding room. Then he turned and shouted, Oh, and Tate? Yeah. Tate stuck his head out of his office door. Keep it brief. She's a minor. Tate shook his head. Of course she is. Perfect. No matter what position she sat in, Andy couldn't get comfortable on the white FBI chair shaped like an ice cream scoop. Too far back, it dug into her back. Too far forward, and it threatened to spill her out onto the floor. The man sitting across the desk from her was, in his late thirties, 5'10", with thick, sandy hair, a square jaw, a V-shaped scar on his bottom lip, round, bird-like eyes, and an obviously unsympathetic expression on his face. He leaned back, tapping his fingers on his desk in a 3-4 rhythm. Okay, so you say they might be killing people, or might not, correct? Yeah, I'm not sure yet, but I have this. She pulled out the evidence envelope. You can see if the DNA on the Gomer ticket matches anyone that's missing or dead. Tate ignored the envelope and then rubbed his face. Okay, you've got to give me more before I'll drop taxpayer cash on the accusations of a teenage girl who has it out for her boss. I don't have it out for him. I actually thought I lo- She stopped herself and folded her hands. I don't have it out for him. Tate squinted. I can give you a list of clients I've seen at his house. He tapped the desk. What else? Um. Tate folded his arms. Like, does he have an M.O. for these supposed killings? You know, a pattern? Does he use a specific weapon? Leave or take anything from the scene? Yes. They always use the same knife. It's chipped out of a rock and 
reeks. She spent the next few minutes explaining what she'd been told about collecting the hair and how public events were the best place to kill. With each detail she shared, Agent Tate's arms, legs, then lips opened. When she drew the scallop shape of the blade, he held out his hand. Don't, don't move, he said, then bolted through the door. Golden, he shouted at a nearby woman with choppy blonde hair. You're going to want to hear this. Seconds later, agents Tate and Golden both sat beside Andy, eyes wide and shoulders forward like Jack Russell Terriers begging for a treat. Andy, the man you're working for is someone the Bureau's been after for years. He's nicknamed the Backaid Butcher because he always kills in August with the knife to the back, Tate said. Sometimes the murders happen at a public event where it's crowded, like you described, and he must either be a master of disguise or have a different person to do his dirty work for him each time at the events. We've compared security tapes and facial recognition software and come up with zero duplicates. We think he might be hiring hitmen. Not hiring, she said. Manipulating. He's a slippery bastard. Every time we think we're close... The evidence dead ends or is too weak for a warrant. Then he goes quiet until another victim crops up in a different state. Our country? Tate nodded. The problem is, even if I met him on the street, I wouldn't be able to arrest him. Not enough tangible proof linked directly to him yet. Tate gave Golden a knowing look. She rose and left the office. Did you say you're working for this guy as a maid? Tate licked his lips. In his house? Yes. He scooted his chair closer. Andy, I can't take him down without more hard evidence. Have you seen anything in his house that might be connected to his victims? She shook her head. Nothing I can think of. Most serial killers collect some item from their victims, like a trophy. The locks of hair, she whispered. Have you seen any others in his house besides the one you gave us? He has hundreds of scalps in a vault and an old hair shirt that monks wore. Scalps? None of the victims on file were scalped. The blonde agent returned and dropped a five-inch thick file on the desk. Thanks, Golden. Tate spun the file towards Andy and opened the cover. He placed photos of face after lifeless face on the table. Pictures of women, men, even children, each lying in a pool of their own blood. When he laid the photo of a little girl in a blood-streaked tutu with her eyes rolled back, Andy covered her mouth. The last murder with this M.O. occurred in, uh... He scanned the list of victims stapled inside the file. Idaho. Fly fishing guide. Hair was too short, so he took a chunk of his beard. Mc... McCall, Idaho? Yes. Tate's voice dropped. How did you know that? In that moment, Tate's face seemed to stretch and contract. I know because I... I, Andy mumbled. 
Suddenly, she realized the kind of man she'd given her heart to, her trust. The room began spinning, banking and tumbling. Then flashes appeared, colored lights that sparked along the rippling ceiling. When the lights turned to murky haze and squeezed in the edge of her vision, Andy put her head between her knees. You okay? Tate put his hand on her shoulder. Can I get a glass of water? Golden Rose. I'll get you one. She quickly returned and carefully placed the glass in Andy's hand. Andy sat up and drank, then nodded and said, I'm okay. We could try the hair shirt, but if it's too old and not actually from his victims, we're screwed, Tate continued. From what you say, he can hire any attorney in the world. I'm not letting him slip away from the Bureau again. I need real evidence from the actual victims, plus a confession, something to erase all doubt. He paused. How old did you say you are? Andy said, 16. He knocked a knuckle on the file. Are your parents home? Maybe. Why? We'll need to get their permission. Agent Tate began restacking the photos he'd pulled from the file. Permission for what? Tate stopped stacking and looked at Andy. To send you back into that house to find the trophies. <laughs>